1: They have planned that are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome, useless eaters, to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, deep political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create
0: uh, uh, a new world order public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship,
1: it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop.
0: And we believe that it can't be... It- anything else than the works of the Satan that could have allowed the creation of this state of Israel that has been created in the land of Palestine. Why? Because there is no no reason or legitimization of creating this land, the state of Israel in the Torah. There is nothing to do with the Jewish religion that allows for us to steal a land from a people, to steal homes from a people. To, uh, to uproot people from the homes who've lived 18 generations. There's no legitimization to steal this land from the, from the Palestinian people. And there is no legitimization at all in the Torah, mind you, of creating a so-called Jewish state. It happens to be that according to the Torah, the concept of having a Jewish state is forbidden even if the land would have been uninhabited. We would still be forbidden to have a Jewish state. And it is a fact that if you will go around the world to any Jewish community that is truly religious, that is a God-fearing community, that is, we'll call it very religious. Whether it will be in New York, in the United States, New York is the center of very religious Jewry. Uh, you can go to Manhattan, just look across the Williamsburg Bridge, you will find the Jewish community that's the most co- large concentration of religious Jews, and there's not one Israeli flag there. They're all anti-Zionist. If you will go to, in Jerusalem, in Meir in Kutz, or if you will go to London, Stanford Hills, Which is the most, which is the religious community, the very religious community in London, I don't know if you can find, maybe here or there, a flag, an Israeli flag. Why? Because the more religious, the more anti-Zionist, the more anti the concept of this so-called Jewish state, the state of Israel, they are. Because why? Because the concept... Of creating a state in Palestine or any other place on the world is expressly forbidden for us because of a good because of many reasons, and I'll just touch on the few reasons that you should understand how clearly it is uh, contradictory to the Jewish religion, and therefore the concept of taking the homes away from the Palestinian people. Is uh, is is totally something which which flies in the face of everything that uh, what it means to be a Jew. The Torah, as a Jewish per- person who's following, who's uh, op- observes or upholds the Jewish teachings, knows that what it means to be a Jew is one thing and one thing only. It means subservience to the Almighty. It means to uphold the covenant that we've made with God on Mount Sinai a few thousand years ago. And this is what Judaism is, closeness to God, being subservient to him, following his commandments, the concepts of godliness, one of our uh, concepts is that just as God is, mahu rachim we say in Hebrew, just as God is compassionate, you must be compassionate, you must emulate God, and that is all what it means to be a Jew. God sent us to the land of Israel, to the Holy Land, a few thousand years ago when we left Egypt, but he stipulated that we, in order to be able to remain there, we must be on a high level of holiness. And if we won't, then God forbid we will be banished from the land as a nation. As individuals, we were allowed to continue living there. And that came about with the destruction of the temple. If anybody, two temples actually, uh, there was one that was destroyed, then the Jews returned, and then there was this, the second was destroyed. Anybody who looks at any of the books of the prophets jeremiah ezekiel isaiah anyone you will find this clearly spelled out that the jews were warned by the prophets that they will be sent out into exile they will not be able to remain as a nation because they weren't on this high level of holiness that is required and with the destruction of the second temple the jewish people accepted this bitter medicine from god this this punishment from god at the same time as a medicine because we were told by god that eventually God is is totally compassionate. God is good. We believe that this concept of being banished from the land, that we are sent into exile, is is, is not a permanent issue. It is something that one day we believe... This is the basics of Jewish teachings, the one of Jewish teachings, that one day the Almighty will make a metaphysical change, will make a miracle, where all humanity will recognize one God, and then without any, there won't be a conflict about this, there won't be any dispute, there won't be any uh, questioning of this. There will be a, a spirit of godliness where the atheists will believe in God, everybody will believe in God, and then we will go up as a nation and serve the Almighty. But if I have to stand there and turn to somebody and say, hey, with a gun, give me the land, it's my land because God gave it to me, then then, then the whole thing is a farce, it's false. We believe, and this is what we pray, we don't talk about, the Jewish concept is nothing about praying for a piece of land, that we were yearning for a piece of land. We were thrown out of our land, and now we're yearning to take back a piece of land. That's missing the point entirely. That's not what Judaism is. Judaism is closeness to God. We were were unfortunately sent away from the the table of God, the house of God. And one day by, by praying, we pray to him and try to better ourselves and serve him. We believe one day there will be a miracle. All humanity will recognize God. Then we will go up. That is what Judaism is. Judaism is religion. Zionism is a transformation into something entirely different. It's a transformation from religion into nationalism. It's a transformation from godliness into base, selfish wants—a yearning for a piece of land to have a, uh, an Olympic team that's going to win gold medals that they'll call Maccabees, using Jew- Jewish uh, names, uh, a strong army. There'll be a proud nations like Italians have Italy and, and so forth. They're going to have—they're uh, uh, the, going to have a country. They, they've, what they've done is they've taken they've taken the shell of what it means to be a Jew, the symbols of Judaism. They've taken the Star of David, they've taken all the, the outs the out the clothing the outs, uh, the outside shell of Judaism, and they're claiming that this is what it means to be a Jew. But they're missing entirely the point of what it means to be a Jew. We say in our prayers constantly, because of our sins we were sent into exile, and the solution is something entirely different. The solution is closeness to God. It has nothing to do with a piece of land. Welcome
1: once again to the Oddcast featuring me, the Odd Man Out. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me once again. This week, we've got a very special show. You could say that this show has been in the making for literally years. And what brought my attention to the subject we're going to be speaking about was an interview that I stumbled upon with Lord Rothschild talking about how he and his family basically started the modern state of Israel. I had no idea about their influence, their part in all that, and so I began to study it, look into it, and I realized that, yes, they were very instrumental in creating the modern state And since then, they've put a lot of money into government structures, museums, parks, and different things there over the years. And so they say, to see who rules you, find out who you're not allowed to criticize. And in the modern day, it's becoming more and more forbidden to criticize anything that the Israeli government does. And so you see people on both the left and the right behind these different laws and policies that are trying to make it completely illegal to criticize anything that anyone who is from Israel or who is Jewish says or does. And we're talking about businesses, we're talking about governments, and people don't realize that this is very dangerous. They want to make us think that it's racist to critique a policy of a government, a government, mind you, that receives $3.8 billion of U.S. taxpayer dollars every year, plus several other billion in loan guarantees. Now, I don't have to explain to anyone who's thinking clearly how dangerous that is, and I think that if one has the ability to kind of separate themselves from their emotions, then they will enjoy this series that I'm about to do. I know it's taking a risk, I know it's a sensitive issue, and it's been made to be way more sensitive than it should be, because I am talking facts here, I'm talking policies, and most of the sources I'm going to be using are from Jewish researchers and authors. So, you can't call it anti-Semitic. I know that that is a popular term used to shoot down anyone who has anything to say, but I'm not putting up with that. And I've told you guys, actually, I have a Jewish card myself because when my grandmother, who I never grew up around, passed away a few years ago, my brother and I figured out her maiden name was Rosenbaum. And she and her family fled Germany during World War II. So there you go. And so we can talk about this issue without being racist, without being anti-Semitic. And like I said, I'm going to be using mostly Jewish sources. And we're going to get to the bottom of how the state was created. We're going to get to the bottom of the Zionist movement, who was behind it, who funded it. We're going to look at the quotes right from the leaders. And we're going to put all this together. And at the end of this series, I'm going to let you guys decide what you think. Because all I'm trying to do is expose the truth, expose hidden history. There's nothing racist about that. There's nothing anti-Semitic about that. I know that some people won't... Want to listen to this whatsoever? Some people will probably stop listening to the show because of it. That's fine. Do what you got to do. But if you want to know the truth and you want to have a bigger picture of this subject, then stick around and listen. And thank you for doing so. One of the things I wanted to start off with is really looking at the different types of Jews, okay? Because I think that a lot of people, including myself, are not real familiar with Jewish culture. And the whole history there has kind of been swept under the rug. And so if you're not part of the community, you don't know a lot about what's going on. And we hear a very small amount over here in the United States. You have the Ashkenazim. That's the Jews from European descent. You have the Sephardim. That's the Jews of Liberia Hebrew and Sephard and the Spanish diaspora. You have the Mizraim, meaning Eastern or Oriental Jews, and then the Ethiopian Jews. Today, Ashkenazim is plural for Ashkenazi, constitute more than 80 percent of all the Jews in the world, vastly outnumbering the Sephardic Jews. In the early 21st century, Ashkenazi Jews numbered about 11 million. In Israel, the numbers of Ashkenazim and Sephardim are roughly equal. Until 1948, Zionism and the immigration of Jews to Palestine were predominantly Ashkenazi inventions. Most religious Jews viewed Zionism as being in opposition to Judaism. Hence, only Jews emancipated from their religious past could become Zionists. Professor Israel Shahak Modern Jews may traditionally trace their ancestry to the Holy Land, but a new genetic study finds otherwise. A detailed look at thousands of genomes finds that Ashkenazim, who make up roughly 80% of the world's Jews, including 90% of those in America and half of those in Israel, ultimately come not from the Middle East, but from Western Europe, perhaps Italy. The result was very clear-cut, the author says. As reported online today in Nature Communications, more than 80% of Ashkenazi MTDNAs had their origins thousands of years ago in Western Europe, during or before biblical times, and in some cases even before farming came to that part of the continent some 7,500 years ago. The closest matches were with MTDNAs from people who today live in and around Italy. The results imply that the Jews can trace their heritage to women who had lived in Europe at that time. Very few Ashkenazi mtDNAs could be traced to the Middle East. The results not only conflict with the Oster and the Behar results, but also with the widespread assumptions about Jewish identity. Jews have traditionally considered that the mother determines the ethnic identity of her children. If Jewishness is being defined as genetically descending from the Israelites through the maternal line, then many Ashkenazi Jews fail the test, according to this data. This is from science.org. In an article from the Israeli news site Haratz, it says here Ashkenazi Jews are to blame for Israel's ethnic rift. Ashkenazi Zionism has always known how to foment trouble in order to continue holding the reins of power. Yuri Avery is mistaken in his claim that the rift between the Ashkenazi and Mizrahi Jews developed immediately after the 1948 War of Independence. He is also mistaken in his crude distinction between these two groups of Jews, which came, he writes, from the two great but very different cultures. Thus, in a few strokes of the keyboard, Avnery puts the cultures of Persia, Turkey, Arabia, Spain, and others into a single basket, and carries the basket of Ashkenazim on his own back. Ashkenazim refers to Jews of Eastern European origins, while Mizraim refers to the Jews of Middle Eastern or North African descent, including Sephardim, who were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula in the 15th century. Let us recall some forgotten facts. Even before the advent of Zionism, there were reports in 1874 of fights between Jews in Paris. These spats were not between Hasid and Misnagadim, or Orthodox and Reformed Jews, according to an August 29, 1874 report in the Hebrew-language newspaper Hatsvera, but rather quarrels between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. When an attempt was made to unify the Sephardim and Ashkenazim and to establish a single synagogue that would follow the Ashkenazi liturgy, the Sephardi reaction was to stand their ground and refuse to leave behind the customs of their forefathers. True, Zionist movement was founded by Ashkenazim with various aspirations. The leaders of Zionism wanted to create a kind of Jew. The Sephardim, however, inhabited a different conceptual space. Echoes of this were heard at the Congress of Yugoslav Zionists in Belgrade on June 13, 1924. The Hebrew-language newspaper Deyar Hayam reported on discontent due to the typically harsh criticism expressed by Ashkenazim against Sephardim. Dr. Vita Kajan, a founder of the Esperanza Association of Sephardi Intellectuals in Vienna, spoke about the painful matters and discussed the differences between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. She said, Our life, the life of the Sephardim, is very different from the life of the Ashkenazi Jews in various countries. Here in the Balkans, the Zionist movement is not considered the be-all-end-all of our national life, he stated. We do not wish to negate the old in favor of the new to the extent of blurring it completely. Back in October 1921, Doar Ha'am reported that in a speech at the Sephardi synagogue in Vienna, Russian Jewish Zionist Ziev Vladimir Jabotinsky enumerated the reasons for the differences between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. Lenny Brenner mentions Jabotinsky. After their expulsion from Spain and Portugal, he said, the Sephardim had the good fortune to be absorbed in countries that did not mistreat them. Because they did not need to fight anyone for their lives, he noted, they fell into indolence. The Ashkenazim, though, lived in difficult conditions and had to use their wits in order to survive. This fight for their existence made them cunning and astute, he declared. The prevalent usage of the term Mizraim, the Hebrew word for Easterners, which brings together under a single roof all the non-Ashkenazim Jews, is relatively new. The ethnic and cultural divisions among Jews used to be quite different. In the past, there was talk of the Ashkenazim, the Sephardim, Yemenis, Arabs, Persians, etc. Evidence of this found in a December 1893 report by Mordecai Halevi on the Jews of Alexandria in the Hebrew weekly Hamagid. He quotes, The Jews who live in the city are mixed. Sephardim speak the language of Spain. Jewish Arabs who were born here speak the language of Arabia, Italian Jews speak Italian, and so on. As for the Jews of Cairo, the Hebrew-language newspaper Hatsfi reported in December 1908, The Sephardi community has existed since ancient times, and to it belong the Spanish and the Portuguese Jews, Arabs from Syria and Mesopotamia, as well as Jews from Turkey, Italy, Greece, Persia, and Yemen. The Sephardi Jews, declared Kajan in his Belgrade speech, are, quote, destined to play an important role in the policy of the lands of the East because we are Easterners, Mizraim, in our characteristics and can easily get along with Arabs, and these roles will not be able to be filled by others with all the necessary prudence. Thus, the rift in 1948 has absolutely nothing to do with the two great but very different cultures, but rather, was created chiefly between Arab Jews and Ashkenazi Zionists who founded the state and imprisoned Arab Jews in the tangle of the conflict with the Arab cultural space. Finishing up here, this is the brother-against-brother war that the leaders of the Ashkenazi Zionism has always known how to provoke in order to continue holding the reins of power. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's war cry of the Arab voters are going to the polls in droves is only the tip of the iceberg of the real rift. Again, that's Heretz, and that'll be in the show notes. So we went over the different types of Jews. Now let's go over the different types of religions in Judaism, shall we? Now we won't go into extreme detail because it would be quite lengthy, but you have the Reform Movement, which arose in Germany in the 19th century as a response to the gradual dropping of legal and political barriers against European Jews by seeking to integrate Jews into a mainstream society that was increasingly available to them politically and socially. It abbreviated the liturgy, introduced prayers and sermons in the vernacular, and singing with organ accompaniment, and rendered dietary and Sabbath restrictions optional. Faced with the opportunity to be accepted into German society, Without having to convert to Christianity, many German Jews felt compelled to eliminate all tribal and ethnic aspects of their Jewish identity, including beliefs that might be construed as superstitious. They even moved their Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday for a time. In America, the Reform Movement became known for its relaxation of ritual overall, preferring to stress the Torah's teachings on ethics. Orthodox Jews, like Rabbi Weiss although he's a certain sect of orthodoxy, but orthodox Jews insist on retaining traditional Jewish laws and customs, not only as they relate to the liturgy, but also to diet and dress. They demand full submission to the authority of the Halakha, the massive accretion of written law and oral laws of Judaism, feeling that the revealed will of God, not the value system of a particular age, is the ultimate standard of conduct. Those laws include separation of the sexes during worship and other roles for women that are at odds with social changes sought by the women's movement. The Hasidic sects comprise a significant segment of Orthodox Judaism. All Hasidism are Orthodox, but not all Orthodox are by any means Hasidic. Conservative Judaism, originally known as Historical Judaism, began in the mid-19th century as a response to the perceived excesses of the Reform movement. Conservative Jews held the westernization of Judaism in the areas of education and culture, embracing modern dress, for instance, but kept the use of Hebrew in the liturgy, the observance of dietary laws and the Sabbath and almost all Torah rituals. In the 1980s, the conservatives decided to admit women as rabbis. The center of the movement is the Jewish Theological Seminary of New York. More American Jews are affiliated with the conservative synagogues than with the Reform or the Orthodox. Then you have Reconstructionist Judaism, which was founded in 1922 in the U.S. by Rabbi Mordecai M. Kaplan in an effort to adapt classical Judaism to the current ideas on science, art, and reason. Reconstructionists see Judaism "...as an evolving civilization rather than a religion, and reject the notion of personal deity, miracles like the parting of the Red Sea, and the whole concept of the chosen people. With only about 60,000 members, it is a minor branch headquartered in Philadelphia, but it has strongly influenced Reformed Judaism. Rabbi Kaplan performed the very first bat mitzvah, conferring on young women a religious rite of passage, previously reserved only for Jewish males, but now commonplace among Reformed congregations. He also began the Havurah movement in which Jews meet in small groups to study and observe Jewish rituals. Recently, Reconstructionism has restored references in its prayer books to supernatural events that it had earlier excised as being unbelievable, but now accept on the level of myth. So there we go, guys the different types of religious Judaism, the Reform, the Orthodox, the Conservative, and the Reconstructionist. Now, in the Orthodox, there's the ultra-conservative Orthodox, which you've probably seen these guys in the black suits and the black hats. It says here, The Haredi are perhaps the most visible, identifiable subset of Jews today. They are easy to spot. Haredi men in black suits and wide-brimmed black hats Haredi women in long skirts, thick stockings, and head coverings, but much harder to understand. Indeed, the history, beliefs, and practices of these devout Jews remain a mystery to many who live outside their communities. The word Haredi is a catch-all term, either an adjective or a noun which covers a broad array of theologically, politically, and socially conservative Orthodox Jews, sometimes referred to as ultra-Orthodox, What unites the Haredim is their absolute reverences for Torah, including both the written and oral law, as the central and determining factor in all aspects of life. Consequently, respect and status are often accorded in proportion to the greatness of one's Torah scholarship, and leadership is linked to learnedness. The Haredi phenomenon is relatively recent, though its precise origins can be difficult to trace. In the 19th century, With the spread of industrialization and urbanization, the barriers that once kept Jews out of European society were loosened. The consequent emergence of a new, more worldly kind of Jew prompted a defensive backlash which led to the birth of an extremely conservative, anti-secular, isolationist expression of Judaism. Major Haredi leaders of this era included prominent Eastern European rabbinic figures such as Rabbi Chaim of Olhazin, and Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan, also known as the Chofetz Chaim. The founding in Poland in 1912 of the Agadas Yisrael, a group representing the social and cultural interests of fervently religious Jews, was a major moment in the emergence of the Haredi movement. Created in a response to escalating assimilation and secularization within the worldwide Jewry, Agudas Yisrael aimed to preserve and maintain Torah-bound Judaism, both on individual and collective levels. The organization was also significant because it was created by a coalition of Hasids and the Mittnagdim, the two major camps of Haredi Jews that had previously been rivals. Hasidism, a movement that emerged in Eastern Europe in the mid-18th century, validated the simple piety of those who could not master the intricacies of advanced Talmudic scholarship the established rabbis who decried Hasidism as false and corrupted were referred to as opposers, or in Hebrew, the Mitnagadim. But as the Hasidic movement evolved, former yeshiva scholarship became increasingly important in the community as well. This led to a lessening of the differences between the Hasidim and the Mitnagadim and some reproachment, making the 1912 Agudas Yisroel coalition possible. The Haredi's politics are pretty interesting. Many Herodim are fundamentally opposed to a secular, modern, pre Messianic Jewish state. A minority, including Sephardim and the Chabad Lubavitch Hasidism, are either ardently or passively Zionist. In nineteen forty seven, the Agodot Israel attempted to dissuade the General Assembly of the United Nations from voting in favor of the partition of Palestine. To this day, the Agodot Israel members run for election and sit in the Knesset, but they refuse to accept any official ministerial post in the Israeli cabinet and remain steadfast in their anti-Zionist ideology. Though resistant to active participation and affiliation with Israel's most secular democracy, Haridi political groups function with the aim of aligning Israel's policies with the Halakha, or Jewish law, as well as ensuring the Haredi schools and institutions continue to receive government funding. Although one may be tempted to view the Haredi cultures as a monolith, various subtle and not-so-subtle distinctions exist. For example, the Sephardim may or may not be considered Haredi, since, as a group, ultra-Orthodox Sephardim do not reject the validity of the modern state of Israel. Also, since the Haredi phenomenon began exclusively among the Ashkenazic Jews, there is a debate as to whether the Sephardic Jews, educated and socialized in European yeshivat, that were restored in Israel, should actually be called Haredi. The existence of institutions such as the Israeli party of the Ida ha-Heredite ha-Sepharadite, I'm sure I butchered that, suggests today that there is indeed a racial diversity among the Herodim. Despite internal differences, the political and demographic strength of the Herodim, both in Israel and in world Jewry in general, continues to grow dramatically. Their ardent and uncompromising devotion to their principles together with their prodigious birth rate, virtually assure that the Haredi community will be a major force in shaping the Judaism of the future. That's from MyJewishLearning.com. Now we'll talk about the influence of Haredi Jews later on in the series, but I just wanted to put this out there. This is a study from 2010 from the Israeli Central Bureau of Statistics, and it reported that 8% of Israel's Jewish population defined itself as heredi, 12% as religious, 13% as traditional religious, 25% as traditional, and 42% as secular. Now, we have to assume that the secular percentage is much higher now, because that's just kind of the way the world is going. And as I mentioned earlier in the series, Washington, our representatives, if you can even call them that anymore, on both sides, in a bipartisan fashion, sends about $3.8 billion of our tax dollars to Israel in aid, and about $8 billion in loan guarantees. And of course, we sell them millions of dollars worth of weapons and other trade deals. And it's just a well-known thing that you really don't get to be a top-tier candidate without going to AIPAC. And that's the reason that you, I believe, saw Bernie Sanders get squashed, even though he was winning. I think that's the reason you saw people like Ron Paul get squashed. You're not going to get anywhere unless you bow down to AIPAC, and that's why you see Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and all the rest, Democrats and Republicans alike, going before APAC. You have to pay your dues, and you have to show that you are going to do what they want you to do. And we'll talk more about the Israeli lobby in the future. It's very powerful, very influential, very wealthy. And that's one thing that the Zionists realized early on, is we have to get influence in U.S. politics to get anywhere. And they learned how to do it, and they're masters at it. Regardless of whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on, may I suggest you get on over to AlternateCurrentRadio.com and check out all their fine music and talk shows. That's my podcasting family. You can find the oddcast there, but many other great shows like their flagship, The Boiler Room. Let me tell you, they've been great to me, and they intend on bringing you the unfiltered truth in the new era. So if you want to support something real, support AlternateCurrentRadio.com and tell them the odd man sent you. Thanks. Now let's look a little bit into the history of how Britain came to control Palestine because it had been under Turkish rule for many moons before that. The appointment of General Edmund Allenby as the commander of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force in June 1917 revitalized the Palestine campaign. His orders from Prime Minister David Lloyd George were to capture Jerusalem by Christmas, and that's exactly what he did, making a low key entrance on December 11, 1917. Allenby replaced General Sir Archibald Murray, who had led two costly and unsuccessful attempts to invade the Turkish province of Palestine in the First and Second Battles of Gaza. Murray had also been criticized as an absentee commander, basing himself in Cairo far from the center of the conflict. Allenby adopted a different approach, sending up his headquarters in the city of Rafa, close to the front lines. Allenby launched the Third Battle of Gaza on the 1st of November 1917. He threw out Murray's strategy of a frontal attack against the heavily entrenched Turkish troops. Instead, he opted to launch a faint attack against the coastal town of Gaza, while the bulk of his force drove inland against the city of Beersheba. The aim was to secure Beersheba's vital water supply and in the process turn the Turkish left flank. A daring charge by a brigade of Australian cavalry at dusk sent the defenders of Beersheba into retreat, leaving the Allies in possession of the critical wells and the Turkish left flank exposed to further attacks. Next, Allenby pushed on to Jerusalem. He launched his first attack against the city in mid-November, but it stalled due to a lack of artillery support and ineffective supply lines. Allenby was better prepared when he launched his second attack against Jerusalem, which began on the 7th of December. This time he had his supply line secured. He attacked from the south of the city rather than through the Judean mountains so that supplies could be moved easily along the road to Ramleh. This plan did, however, mean that he would be attacking the city's strongest defences. When the attack came, the Allies expected to encounter a determined defence. In fact, they found the morale of the Ottoman defenders had been broken, and the city was abandoned after just one day of fighting. On December eleventh, Allenby entered the city. He recognized the religious importance of Jerusalem, and so chose to enter on foot. This respectful entrance contrasted sharply with the arrival of Kaiser Wilhelm II in 1898, who rode into the city on a white horse and was viewed as arrogant by the residents. Now, obviously, that was kind of the candy-coated, cookie-cutter explanation of the Brits going into Palestine. But let's look a little bit about perhaps why they decided to do that. Here from Alison Ware's book, Against Our Better Judgment, the hidden history of how the U.S. was used to create Israel. She explains that and a lot of other things. And one of the great things about this book, half this book is footnotes and references. So she documents where she got every quote, all the information, and it leads you to other books, historical books that a lot of times are hard to find, you're going to pay through the nose for. But at least she gives you the sources so you can investigate this really big, layered subject yourself. She says here on page 16, From the very beginning of their movement, Zionists realized that if they were to succeed in their goal of creating a Jewish state on land that was already inhabited by non-Jews, they needed backing from one of the great powers. They tried the Ottoman Empire, which controlled Palestine at the time, but were turned down, although they were told that Jews could settle throughout other parts of the Ottoman Empire and become Turkish citizens. They then turned to Britain, which was also initially less enthusiastic. Famous English Middle East experts, such as Gertrude Bell, pointed out that Palestine was Arab and that Jerusalem was sacred to all three major monotheistic faiths. Future British foreign minister, Lord George Curzon similarly stated that Palestine was already inhabited by half a million Arabs who would not be content either to be expropriated for Jewish immigrants or to act merely as hewers of wood and drawers of water for the latter. However, once the British were embroiled in World War I, and particularly during 1916, a disastrous year for the Allies in which there were 60,000 British casualties in one day alone, Zionists were able to play a winning card. While they previously had appealed to religious or idealistic arguments, now Zionist leaders could add a particularly powerful motivator telling the British government that Zionists in the U.S. would push America to enter the war on the side of the British if the British promised to support a Jewish home In Palestine afterwards. This is kind of one of the missing pieces of the puzzle, at least it was for me. In 1917, British Foreign Minister Lord Balfour issued a letter to Zionist leader Lord Rothschild. Known as the Balfour Declaration, this letter promised that Britain would view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. The letter then qualified this somewhat by stating that it should be clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. The non-Jewish communities were 92% of Palestine's population at the time, vigorous Zionist immigration efforts having slightly expanded the percentage of Jews living in Palestine by then. The letter while officially signed by British Foreign Minister Lord Balfour, had been in the process for two years and had gone through a number of edits by British and American Zionists and British officials. As Zionist leader Nahum Sokolov later wrote, every idea born in London was tested by the Zionist organization in America and every suggestion in America received the most careful attention in London. Go back to the very first episode I did by myself on the Pilgrim Society, you'll realize that the Pilgrim Society, one of their main goals at the time was to bring America into World War I, and they were putting a lot of money, time, and effort into doing just that, and they won. They were able to do it. Sokolov went on to write, The British Zionists were helped, above all, by American Zionists. Between London, New York, and Washington, there was constant communication, either by telegraph or by personal visit. And as a result, there was perfect unity among the Zionists of both hemispheres. Sokolov particularly praised the beneficent personal influence of the Honorable Louis D. Brandeis, Judge of the Supreme Court. The final version of the Declaration was actually written by Leopold Amory, a British official who, it came out later, was a secret and fervent Zionist. It appears that the idea for such a declaration had been originally promoted by Parashim founder Horace Colin. Jewish author Peter Gross reports, The idea had come to the British from an unlikely source. In November 1915, long before the United States was involved in the war, the fertile brain of Horace Colin had come up with the idea of an Allied statement Supporting in whatever veiled way was deemed necessary Jewish national rights in Palestine. Gross also said Collins' idea led a spark of interest in Whitehall. While the Balfour Declaration was a less than ringing endorsement of Zionism, Zionists considered it a major breakthrough because it cracked open a door that they would later force wider and wider open. In fact, Many credit this as a key factor in the creation of the modern state. Now, you heard me talking about Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who was a fervent Zionist, and he had the ear of Woodrow Wilson. It's well-known. There's been books written about it. He was linked up a little bit later with another Supreme Court Justice, Felix Frankfurter, another Zionist, and these guys were actually in a secret society coming out of Yale called the Parashim, which you heard me also mention. Let's look a little bit at how this was a huge influence in getting the U.S. to also support the modern state of Israel. In 1912, Jewish American attorney Louis Brandeis, who was to go on to become a Supreme Court justice, became a Zionist. Within two years, he became head of the International Zionist Central Office, newly moved to America from Germany. While Brandeis is an unusually well-known Supreme Court justice, most Americans are unaware of the significant role he played in World War I and of his connection with Palestine. Some of his work was done with Felix Frankfurter, who became a Supreme Court justice two decades later. Perhaps the aspect of Brandeis that is least known to the general public, and often even to academics, is the extent of his zealotry and the degree to which he used covert methods to achieve his aims. While today Brandeis is held in extremely high esteem by most all Americans, there was significant opposition at the time to his appointment to the Supreme Court, largely centered on widespread accusations of unethical behavior. A typical example was the view that Brandeis was a man who has certain high ideas in his imagination, but who is utterly unscrupulous in the method in reaching them. While today such criticisms of Brandeis are either ignored or attributed to political differences and or anti-Semitism, there is evidence suggesting that such views may have been more accurate than Brandeis's partisans would like. In 1982, historian Bruce Allen Murphy, in a book that won a Certificate of Merit from the American Bar Association, reported that Brandeis and Frankfurter had secretly collaborated over many years on numerous covert political activities, and Zionism was one of them. There's also a book called The Brandeis-Frankfurter Connection, The Secret Political Activities of Two Supreme Court Justices. I don't have that book, but it sounds interesting. Here's a couple quotes from that book. Working together over a period of 25 years... They placed a network of disciples in positions of influence and labored diligently for the enactment of their desired programs. This adroit use of the politically skillful Frankfurter as an intermediary enabled Brandeis to keep his considerable political endeavors hidden from the public. Brandeis only mentioned the arrangement to one other person, Murphy writes, another Zionist lieutenant, Court of Appeals Judge Julian Mack. Now, the book goes on to talk more in depth about their planning and scheming behind the scenes, but I'll skip on to a little bit more interesting information. But I definitely think you should pick up this book, Against Our Better Judgment. It's great. Frankfurter had joined the faculty at Harvard in 1914 at the age of 31. A post gained after a Brandeis-initiated donation from financier Jacob Schiff to Harvard that created a position for Frankfurter. We know that Jacob Schiff worked for Kuhn and Loeb. He funded Trotsky going back over to Russia to start the Bolshevik Revolution or finish the Bolshevik Revolution. We know that the Schiffs were the founders or partial founders of the Federal Reserve. They intermarried with other Federal Reserve families. And, of course, we know that the Schiffs are still powerful to this day. Murphy goes on to write, For 25 years, Frankfurter shaped the minds of the generations of the nation's most elite law students. After Brandeis became the head of the American Zionist movement, he created an advisory council, an inner circle of his closest advisors, and appointed Felix Frankfurter as one of its members. These are Supreme Court justices, guys. Okay, and this is where it gets into the secret society known as the Parashim. Even more surprising to this author, and even less well-known both to the public and to the academics, is Brandeis' membership in a secret society that covertly pushed Zionism both in the U.S. and internationally. Israeli professor Sarah Schmidt first reported this information in an article about the society published in the 1978 edition of the American Jewish Historical Quarterly. She also devoted a chapter to the Society in a 1995 book. An author and former New York Times editor, Peter Gross, sympathetic to Zionism, also reported on it in both a book and several subsequent articles. According to Gross, who is a highly regarded author, Brandeis was a leader of an elitist secret society called the Parashim, the Hebrew word for Pharisees or separate, which grew out of Harvard's Menorah Society. Schmidt wrote, the image that emerges out of the Parashim is that of a secret underground guerrilla force determined to influence the course of events in a quiet, anonymous way. Gross writes that Brandeis used the Parashim as a private intellectual cadre, a pool of manpower for various assignments. Brandeis recruited eager young men, often from Harvard, to work on the Zionist cause and to further their careers in the process. As the Harvard men spread out across the land in their professional pursuits, Gross reports, their interests in Zionism were kept alive by secretive exchanges and the trappings of a fraternal order. Each invited initiate underwent a solemn ceremony, swearing the oath to guard and to obey and to keep secret the laws and the labor of the fellowship, its existence and its aims. Well, that wraps up Those We Don't Speak Of, Part 1. Stay tuned for part two. We're going to get right into the Sacred Oath of the Parashim and a lot more stuff that you don't know about. I promise. Okay, I want to get right to it. I want to thank ACR, that's AlternateCurrentRadio.com, for posting the show. I want to thank my patrons so much for supporting me. And if you want to become a patron and give back to the oddcast, time is money. Then go to patreon.com forward slash theoddmanout. You can always find me at underscore theoddmanout on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you also to Fringe Radio Network for posting the show and all my other friends out there who have supported me. Please share the show. Tell others about the show. Give me a good rating if you don't mind. And I'll be talking to you very soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.